welcome to the Is That So podcast. My name is Sahela and I am the host and chief content officer here at the Is That So podcast. Follow along each week as I share stories, pose questions, and provide insights on various wellness, travel, and relationship topics aimed to help us all navigate through this rapidly evolving modern world a little bit easier. Here at the Is That So podcast, we believe that life should always be a work in progress. So come learn, laugh, and listen in on unfiltered stories and conversations so that we can open new doors to inspiration, happiness, and forward thinking together. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Is That So podcast. Today, I have invited food stylist, chef, and clinical psychologist, Armita Hosseini, to come on the podcast to talk about how society's relationship with food has changed over the last century, as well as the importance of mindful eating. For those who don't know Armita, she is an Iranian-Canadian psychologist, self-taught cook, artist, and food designer who is passionate about the artistic expression of various international cuisines, particularly Middle Eastern and traditional Iranian cuisine. Welcome, Armina. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be doing this podcast with you. Yes, I'm so happy you're here, especially since the first time I actually got introduced to you was through Instagram. And I must say, I fell in love with your feed because you treat food like it's an art form and your plating is some of the best I have ever seen. I was actually super surprised to learn that you were not only self-taught, but a clinical psychologist as well, which is why I thought you'd be the perfect guest to come on the podcast to discuss the anthropology of food, the rise of mental health issues around food, and the importance of mindful eating. But before we dive into our conversation, why don't you, Armida, tell us a little bit more information about your origin story and how you found your calling now as a cook and food designer? Sure, I'll do that. So my education and uh, graduate training is in psychology. I'm a trained psychologist. I practice in Toronto. It's an interesting background given the passion that I have as a cook and a food designer. I think very critically about kind of psychological experiences of our eating and try to demonstrate that in my cooking and design work. Um, it's a, it's a long story, but if I have to cut it short, I would say that I come from a very creative family and that really influenced how and why I think about food in terms of an artistic expression. Mm -hmm. And I started seriously cooking in, you know, 2014, like many immigrant families in Canada, my parents lived abroad on and off. So I ended up being independent and living on my own in my mid 20s. And, you know, oftentimes many important celebratory or holidays I would spend with friends because my immediate family didn't live in Canada. So I started to cook Thanksgiving dinners, have my friends over. It was kind of gathering my second family in Toronto. Yes. And that turned into a tradition every year. And um, this is going to sound a little bit cheesy, but it was my way of connecting with the family that I missed abroad. And food was really a medium that brought us all together and made Toronto more of a home for me. Yes. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the plating stuff that I do, when COVID started, I initially had more time on my hands because I was working from home. And I began to play around with design inspirations because I do a little bit of calligraphy and design on the side. I demonstrated it on my cooking and on the plates. 
And, you know, I, I posted some stuff and I got a lot of interest and reception from people who were following me. And I thought to myself, hmm, maybe there is something here that I can explore and share with people. Well, you definitely have an eye for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love the way that you will take a dish and elevate it to a piece of art. I think how uh, a plate looks really affects our experience of eating. It's interesting because there are certain foods that you eat that maybe not necessarily look the greatest. So it's kind of a challenge for me to turn that into something that visually also looks appealing. Yeah. And I have so many questions because one of the reasons why I love following you and seeing your food is because a lot of people don't have the best relationships with food. And I feel like you take it to a whole other level where you're like in love with it. You play with it. You create these beautiful things. And then it's just not a feast for the stomach. It's a feast for the eyes too. But obviously, society's relationship with food has changed over the years. So can you kind of walk us through how things have changed since the Stone Age? It's going to be a long answer. But (laughs) I think if you look at eating from a psychological lens and understand the anthropology of food consumption, then a lot of the relationships that we have with food will make sense. Sure. You know, eating can be as much a social act as a process of nourishment. Other social meanings of food and eating relate to our sense of identity, self-control, morality. Sometimes people eat things because there's a relationship with their beliefs and religions. For example, if you look at a Jewish dietary laws, then you can kind of understand that that really sets them apart from other cultures. Or for example, Mexicans tend to have a lot of tortillas with their meals. It's almost part of their culture and how they present their food. So I think social culture of where you grew up will have a huge impact on how you look at food. And our references sometimes are different depending on what our goals are. Sometimes we have fitness goals. Sometimes we have certain illnesses. So we accommodate and adapt our diet according to that. Sometimes we have specific religious beliefs. So our diet then becomes different based on that. For example, I don't know if you're familiar with the Krishna cuisine. Have you heard of that before? No, not as a cuisine. (laughs) Okay. So Krishna cuisine is a division of Hinduism where meat is thought of anger and lust because it increases stress hormones when animals is slaughtered, which is stored in its tissue and then transferred to whoever consumes it. So people who follow the Krishna cuisine abstain from eating meat, eggs and fish and consume vegetables only. Similar patterns are seen in Buddhist beliefs and principles where they avoid eating animals and mainly stick to vegetarian food because it helps them with focus and balance in their meditation and daily life. Yeah. So that's the social kind of meaning of food. Yeah. The other part is there are many different disorders of food, anorexia being an example that happens in boys, men, older women, but there seems to be a higher 
prevalence in younger women and girls. Yeah. And I think food disorders are becoming more and more common, not on an individual basis, but also globally. Yes. So there's a lot of images that we see in social media about slender supermodels and that concerns us with the standards of beauty that we need to follow. So that could be one cause of it. Yes, I actually read something recently about how the National Eating Disorder Information Center estimated that 40% of nine-year-old girls dieted to lose weight, even when they were a normal weight. And I also know that eating disorders are the highest in mortality rate for all mental illnesses. So it's a big yes. issue. Yes, it's, a, it's quite a dangerous disorder to have because it's not only psychological, but it's physically impacting us as well. Yeah. And that's an individual scale of how disorders of food can impact a person. But I think also on a global scale, if you look at it, you can argue that our entire planet collectively is suffering from malnutrition, particularly in our patterns of eating. Yes. So you have undernutrition that comes from a variety of lacks of proteins in our diet or certain minerals or vitamin deficiency. Mm-hmm. And you have different causes of undernutrition. For example, if you live in an area where there's a drought or crop diseases, or if you are living low economic status society, or even if you're in a war zone or in an area where politically that could be impacting your nutrition. Yes. At the same time, we also have overnutrition, which results in a lot of irregular eating habits and large portion sizes. Yes. That could cause many medical illnesses. So certain countries that are undergoing rapid economic development, they tend to have a lot of processed foods that are readily available. It's easier to preserve, but they're not locally produced and they don't have nutritional values. Mm -hmm. So I think overall, there is a rising pandemic of malnutrition globally that's going on for us. It's so scary to think that because, you know, when we had to hunt for food it was literally for our survival and now either we don't have access to the good food or we have a lot of access but we're not eating the right stuff because we're not educated on what will actually fill us with the nutrients that we need to survive yes absolutely yeah. And I feel like that's something that should be part of the education program because, you know, I've seen Jamie Oliver go into schools in the United States and look at the school lunch program. And, you know, he's made some really great points about how this is not nutrition and you're feeding it to your kids and you're not actually giving them the nutrients to grow and for their for their brains to be nourished. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of the responsibilities of people who know more about food, people who cook or or chefs, that becomes kind of their social responsibility to be able to educate the public of ingredients that are nutritious and good for you and impact your health. And that's a big shift that needs to happen in our culture, especially the North American culture, where there's such high rates of obesity, especially in the United States, for example, where majority of foods are processed, they're assembled, make it fast and convenient to both serve and eat, 
and they taste good because they have a lot of fatty and, and cheap and cheap. Yes. And, you know, when I was thinking about our podcast and the relationship with food, it got me thinking that when we buy organic food, it's becoming a specialty commodity. It's more scarce. It's more expensive. And it's not part of the bigger picture of a systemic approach to producing food. Mm -hmm. So these are all topics to consider and think about when we look at our relationship and society's relationship with food. Yes, absolutely. I just feel like also people are so used to having food readily available to them, especially in North America, where they don't need to worry about not having it available to them. So they just overeat or like they don't have the same appreciation for the food because it's always going to be there. Whereas during the Stone Ages, we had to hunt for it. There was way more appreciation for using as much as we can of the animal and where I feel like now there's so much discard as well and waste. Absolutely. I recently posted about that on my Instagram about the culture of uh, respecting animals and eating all parts of it. My, one of my favorite restaurants in Toronto East, um, the head chef talks about that, talks about the hunting habits of Aboriginal people and how they utilize and use every part of an animal because number one, it, it's their way of showing respect to the animal and also preserving and not killing as many animals and eating the the most, getting the best out of mm -hmm. that animal as much as they can. Yeah, I feel like we need to do that more and learn to appreciate our food more because if we can do that, then maybe we won't villainize it as something that is making us fat or maybe we'll be more mindful of what we choose to put into our body that's actually providing nutrition and also not overeat if possible. Yeah. There's mass production of junk food that we consume and less healthy ingredients. And also it goes hand in hand with people having busier lives and less time to cook, thinking that everything has to be fast and easy. You know, oftentimes I'm guilty of it. I look up easy, fast recipes. Yeah. And we forget that cooking takes time and even making that time, sharing that time with family, that's all part of the experience of eating. Yeah. And I think having those relationships with food and seeing them within the family unit, especially because family members who show disorder eating, the members of those families and the children of those families have a higher risk of developing an eating disorder if a close family member also has an eating disorder. So if the parents could actually educate their children on nutrition, on cooking, making it a part of a family experience, I think it would help everyone have better relationships with food overall. Yes, I absolutely agree. I think education early on on, children model. So when they see their parents cook, when they see their parents eat healthy ingredients, when the parents look at food as nutrition for the body and they don't count calories, all of these are modeling behaviors that we teach our children. Exactly. So it goes a long way. Yeah. So how do you think that we can learn to appreciate food more and be more mindful and deliberate about what we're putting into our body? So 
I also want to be mindful when people listen to this podcast. Obviously, if you're struggling with eating and you have an eating disorder, you have to speak with a licensed mental health professional, a psychiatrist or a family physician. But when we talk about awareness of food and mindful eating, uh, first, it's being aware of your portion. So viewing food and ingredients as elements that nourish your body to stay strong and healthy. Mm -hmm. Every time you eat, try to see if you can notice something different about the texture of your food. Think about the colors on your plate, even the sounds of textures you bite. This helps to slow down your eating to make you be aware of your consumption and significantly reduce big portions. Asking yourself, are you eating to nourish yourself or are you eating because you're feeling emotionally hungry? Yes. If the latter, then I have some specific tips um, that I think people listening to this podcast might find helpful. Tip number one is every time you overeat or feel compelled to reach for whatever your version of comfort food is, take a moment to figure out what triggered the urge to eat that food. Right. If you backtrack, you'll usually find a setting event that kicked off the emotional eating cycle. Yes. And you're using the food to numb. Yes. Write it down in your food diary. What you ate, write down what happened to upset you, how you felt before you ate, what you felt as you were eating or even afterwards. Over time, you start to see a pattern emerging. Once you identify your emotional eating triggers, yes. the next step would be to identify healthier ways to feed your feelings. Yes. So that's tip number one. I have three tips. Tip number two is looking at coping skills when it comes to emotional eating. So if you're depressed or lonely, can you call someone who can make you feel better? Do you have a pet you can play with? Mm -hmm. If you're anxious, can you expand your nervous energy by dancing to a favorite song or movement or squeezing a stress ball? If you're exhausted, can you treat yourself to a nice bath, a hot cup of tea? If you're bored, can you read a good book or engage in an activity that you enjoy? Yeah. So developing coping skills, strategies that can replace your emotional eating. Yes. That's tip number two. My last tip, allowing yourself to feel uncomfortable emotions. I think most often uncomfortable emotions are quite scary. Absolutely. The truth is, though, when we don't obsess over and suppress our emotions, even the most painful ones, we can get over them relatively quicker and gain power to control our emotions. And to do this, you need to become more mindful and learn how to stay connected to your moment-to-moment emotional experiences. This can enable to reduce stress and repair some of the emotional problems that often trigger emotional eating. Yes. And on the other hand, what if someone chooses to not eat? So, you know, it can get a little bit technical. I think overeating and not eating enough, both of them could be triggered by emotional sensitivities and reactions that we have, the triggers that I talked about. Yeah. So because eating disorders are such, um, as you said, they can be very dangerous. Yes. 
I highly suggest, and I said that earlier, is to seek help from a medical professional and a psychologist or a mental health professional that specializes in eating disorders, because it's one of those disorders where there has to be a holistic approach in medicine and psychology. Yes. I mean, I feel like personally, when I am eating, one thing that I try to do is first ask myself whether I'm really hungry or whether I'm just bored and trying to eat. I do tend to just drink more water in general as a way of Mm -hmm. understanding if I am craving something out of boredom or if my sugar levels are down and I actually need something to like keep me going and keep my energy sustained. But then I'm also looking at what am I eating? How much nutrition is it actually giving me? Should I be eating carrots and hummus or should I be eating a slice of cheesecake? You know what I mean? Both are amazing and taste really, really good. But which one is going to actually serve me and serve my goals right now? Mm -hmm. And so I always try to honor myself when choosing what I'm going to eat and what I'm going to put into my body. Obviously, there's balance to everything. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll want the cheesecake and I'll have it. But like I try not to do that every single day because I know that I have other goals like you know, I want to be able to feel good and not eat too much sugar because it makes me bloated and I get gassy. And (laughs) um, that's not always fun to be around. And it's not comfortable for me either. So I know, okay, I can't handle that much sugar. I can't handle that much dairy. I'm going to eat more vegetables. I'm going to eat more things that my body agrees with because they make me feel better. And then when I'm not crashing because of sugar, I can actually get the work done that I want to. I can accomplish the goals easier that I want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I just overall feel better and I have a better relationship with food. I'm more mindful and I'm happier with what I'm putting into my body because it actually benefits me. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good example of mindful eating. All of what you said is constantly monitoring and being aware of your emotions and your relationship with food. You know, we all slip up. We all have junk food. I love sweets. And I think that's okay. Especially for women. I think when they're... That's totally okay. Yeah. Women have a different system too. I often hear comments about, you know, around your period time and menstrual cycle, you crave more junk food or sweets. And that's okay too. It's also important to remind ourselves to not feel too guilty about devouring a cheesecake or a bag of chips if you do it once in a while, Mm -hmm. let it be. Enjoy it. Absolutely. And not feel too guilty. Yeah. I mean, it's not about villainizing the food or your behavior. It's about just being more mindful of what you're doing, listening to your body, asking yourself, does this honor me and my goals and the things that I want? Does this make me feel good? And, you know, is it putting nutrients in my body that's actually going to sustain me throughout the day? Or is it just for a fix? And if it's for a fix, that's okay, too. But then just maybe be more mindful not to do that so often. Yes, the frequency of it. I think it's all about balance. Yeah. And like just with like alcohol and anything that has sugar in it, sugar plays on your happiness chemicals and your brain receptors. So you become addicted to sugar quite easily without even realizing it. 
And so even weaning off sugar can give you headaches and give you come down symptoms. Yes. So you just have to be mindful that maybe you're addicted to sugar and just try to cut that stuff out because it doesn't serve the body. Mm -hmm. You can find Mm -hmm. sugars in natural food products like fruits and that can be enough sugar to sustain you. You don't really need artificial sugar to live. It doesn't provide any nutrients. Yeah, it's hard, but it's doable. It takes discipline and self-control, but it's appreciating what an ingredient can offer you instead of adding things to it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, oftentimes, whether it's an apple or strawberries or fruits, as you said, they already have uh, sugar in them. So we don't need to. I think the natural ingredients that we eat in in our foods, if we eat healthy, They have all the nutrients and taste that we, our bodies need to give us. Well, one of the things that I love about your Instagram is how big of a contrast it is from people villainizing food where they decide like, oh, I don't want to eat it, where here you are looking at it as self-expression. And not only do you create these like beautiful looking things, but they taste really good and play to all of your senses. So how does engaging, and I know you've mentioned this even on your platform, but how does engaging all of our senses while eating? eating, not just like taste or smell, but sight and sounds also mm-hmm. enhance our experience when you're eating? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think my background in psychology really shapes how I think about eating, serving, plating, and our experiences that are attached to it. There was actually a psychological study done by Charles Spence, who is the head of a laboratory at Oxford University based on the idea that all of our behaviors are impacted by all of our senses. Yes. So the way all of our senses work together, sometimes we're unaware of it. So how does this affect the taste of food? In his research, he looks at the relationship between how food and taste can interact. Mm -hmm. For example, oftentimes if we hold our nose when we're tasting something or if we have a cold, we won't be able to taste the food as much. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because food, smell, and the taste are closely linked, our senses. Or if you're eating something and you know it tastes good, But if it appears a little bit unappetizing, we tend to taste it different. So this is an evolutionary ability that picked up to survive, to distinguish good and bad food. Yeah, it's like an avocado that you made like a, a guacamole and then the next day it's kind of brown and you're like, oh, I, like, I don't know if I want to eat that, but it tastes just as good. It's just now brown. Yes. But for some reason, our brain yes. tells us that doesn't look so appetizing anymore. Absolutely. And to kind of explain to you how that can lead to our every day today and as a food designer and I mean a psychologist, I think I have to give you a little bit of a background about how our brains are wired. So yes, please. If you look at our sense of hearing, for example, when we hear something, our reflexive sound is much faster than what we see. So sound tends to get into our area of brain where the emotions live 100 times faster than sight. So in this experiment that Charles did, he concluded that people can make interpretations of sounds as tastes. Interesting. So he played a music that was high pitch. It was fast tempo. There were fast and sharp nuances. And he was trying to portray 
the food as spicy. Uh-huh. And people who are exposed to the spicy soundtrack, their expectations of the food being spicy were much greater than those who listen to white noise or a sweet soundtrack. No way. That is crazy. So, and I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I'm very fascinated by that. And there's a lot of research that shows when you go to a restaurant that plays loud and exciting music, it actually dulls the taste of food and you tend to eat more. So when we look at from a dietary standpoint, if you wear earplugs while you're eating, you can reduce your caloric intake. What? Because when you're wearing an earplug. Seriously? Yes, earplugs? I want to call it an earplug. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. You hear yourself chewing, you pay more attention to how much you're eating and you can stop. Yes. No, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And I guess a little bit tip for people that are trying to control their diets, maybe they could start wearing earplugs. But even from a branding and a restaurant perspective, if chefs and cooks realize the music we play in the background doesn't just fill in space, it, it can actually make an impact on our perception of the food and, it, and its taste. I think it goes a long way. And that's yeah. how I think about as a food designer and a cook, that's how I think about our senses. It really is an appeal for us to become more in tune with our senses and our experiences because when we're in tune with a moment and paying attention to what's coming in through our senses, we enjoy food more. So maybe that's why I enjoy Saganaki so much is because it has that sizzle on the plate when it's served to you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that th- that can actually make a difference and make it or break it. Like it's just how it's presented. Even the sounds that accompany that dish or uh, meal do make a difference. Yeah. And eating is a very ritualistic part of our lives. We eat three times a day. But what has happened in our day-to-day business, because we're so busy, is that we've lost some of the aspects of those rituals because we're so distracted with our surroundings. And my aim as a food designer who has a background in psychology is to encourage people to enhance their senses visually, musically, and even with textures when they eat. Yes. I feel like it's also important because I know like everyone has these busy lifestyles. We hardly sometimes take break from work to go eat. We'll eat at our desk so that we can continue working. But when you do that, you're not mindful eating. So it's really important to be conscious of what you're choosing, be conscious of what you're eating, and then actually pay attention while you're eating it and enjoy the food and really savor every bite because, you know, it's putting nutrition into your body and helps you enjoy the whole experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's so very cool. I love that you're plug diet. <laughs> I'm going to try it because I want to see if it works. I'm going to put it to the test. And I know you sent me some notes previously about it and about mindful eating. So I'll make sure to put those also in the show notes for everyone to go check out. But before yeah. you go, can you please share with everyone where the best place is to find you online? Yeah. So I have Instagram. My Instagram is cooking with Armita, A-R-M-I-T-A. And I've started to do a lot of posts about food. And 
I'm fascinated with food history. So sometimes I give tips for the best restaurants in town and provide a history of what I plate and what I post. So they can find me on Instagram. Yes, I saw the plate that you did for Beirut after the explosion there. And I thought it was so beautiful and such a nice sentiment from the heart. Yes, I think that if you have a a talent or a capability to do something, you can use that to really connect people. And I think food and cooking is a great way to connect people, whether they live close by or far away and you don't know them. I think it has that power. And oftentimes we underestimate how powerful art and cooking can be. Absolutely. And I thank you for bringing that to everyone's attention, because I think it definitely is connected and it has a powerful message and you can just do whatever you can to help other people and create a better world around you. And I love that you're doing that through your food. So thank you again for coming. It was so nice to have you on the show and I wish you well on your journey, my friend. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Is That So podcast. For more information on this episode and all past episodes, you can check out my show notes on isthatso.com or follow me on Instagram at isthatso. If you enjoyed this episode and want to show your personal support to the podcast, simply leave a review on iTunes or screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your stories. All right, friends, that's it. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Is That So podcast. And I look forward to hanging out with you again soon.